Well, I want to add my uh, good morning and welcome to those of you who are with us this morning, perhaps for the first time, or maybe you're here because your grandchild was uh, singing up here. That's always a good reason to, uh, to come out. So uh, we're glad you're here with us this morning. You know, for the last four weeks, <clears throat> we have been learning about the doctrine of election. That's a study that uh, has grown out of our larger study in the book of Romans. We've now paused here in Romans chapter 9 to deal with this glorious and mysterious and unsettling and comforting doctrine of election. It is all of that and more. If you're interested in learning what has gone before this point, then you can go to our website and you will be able to download the prior messages with regard to this because we are on part five of a message entitled Chosen by God and uh, there'll definitely be a part six, I can tell you that right now. So there's just a lot here for us. Open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter one, chapter one of Romans Page 1125, if you're using a pew Bible. A comment that I heard uh, last Sunday at the door as uh, people were leaving reminded me of the importance of uh, locating any discussion of sovereign election firmly in the context of Paul's devastating description of the true spiritual condition of humanity. And Paul does that in Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3. Somewhere back in your hazy memory, uh, you might be able to dredge something up. We covered those chapters in somewhat excruciating detail. Um, Almost two years ago, we were back there, just to let you know. So, um, But I I think it's important we just for a moment or two go back there and, and refresh ourselves with what Paul did say back there, because it provides the foundation under which this glorious doctrine of election must be understood. Paul, in Romans chapter 1, I'm looking at verse 18, begins a a series of of, uh, indictments. He presents an indictment here against the human race. He does so speaking first in chapter 1 about the Gentiles, and then over in chapter 2, He speaks about the Jewish nation, and then in chapter 3, he pulls it together and uh, finishes with his his indictment here, whereby he determines there is none righteous, no, not one. And in chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, running all the way to verse 32, Paul demonstrates the fall of humanity. And he says, just essentially in review for you, in verse 21, that humanity has fallen intellectually, Verses 22 to 23, that man has fallen spiritually. Verses 24 to 27, that man has fallen sexually. And verses 28 to 32, that man has fallen socially. So in every realm of his being, man is completely devastated by sin. There is no part of him that has not been ruined by this deadly disease. Beyond that, in chapter 2, as I said, Paul continues, and there he, he condemns the self-righteous Jew, verse 3, or do you disuppose this old man when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things, that is, the things of Romans 1, and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. 
Answer, no, you will not. And so he presents a very severe indictment there of the self-righteous who look upon the fallen world around them and, and click their tongues and wag their heads and, and say how vile, how disgusting, and then continue to do the same things themselves in thought, word, and deed. So Paul doesn't let anyone off the hook here. And as I said, he brings about this summary judgment in chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. And I'll just go ahead and read that for you. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. And Paul says, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their paths. The path of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul finishes there and he says the race is absolutely ruined. The verdict of the scripture of the word of God is that all People stand condemned and in need of a Savior. That is the universal predicament of mankind. All are ruined. All are bound over in judgment and headed for hell. The Scripture also says that God sovereignly chooses to save some of that ruined race purely as an act of His mercy. He plucks from the ruination of man some upon whom he will spread his, his mercy, and others he hardens by passing them over, and in that case it is purely an act of divine justice. They receive that which they are due as just penalty for their wickedness. Therefore, Rob, Paul can say in Romans chapter 9, verse 18, so then he is mercy on whom he is mercy, and he hardens whom he hardens. And that takes us right into the meat of our study. Take out your handout, and we're continuing on with that particular handout. There were six questions that were postulated last week, and as I told you, those questions are sort of a summary of many, many questions that flocked in via email from a number of you. And so I kind of distilled them down into six questions, hopefully getting at the gist of what it is you were asking. And we began to answer them last week, and uh, we managed to find our way through the first question last week. And so here we go on question number two. This week, uh, we're not going to finish again. This is, um, I feel like I'm running the 100-yard dash in the sand here. The harder I run, the slower I get, and I'm um, just trying to keep it somehow within uh, some kind of reasonable boundaries. But anyway, we're going to look at beginning at question two this week, and we're doing that so that we can better understand and believe the glorious doctrine of election. It is all over the Bible. It is undeniable. You cannot open the Bible and read it for any length of time and avoid this glorious doctrine. So we need to understand it so that we can rejoice and glorify in it. Now, 
just by way of review, last week I asked a difficult question, and that is, how does God harden the non-elect? And that question occupied us for the whole time. And we demonstrated last time from many, many scripture passages that, the, that God hardens the non-elect through the repeated, unheeded exposure to the Word of God. That is, God continues to pour forth His revelation upon them and it goes unheeded because man, as we read here in Romans 3, doesn't understand, doesn't seek, and doesn't care. He's happy where he is. And so as the revelation of God is continually poured forth upon him, it continues to harden his heart. Repeated exposure results in hardening. That was the point last week. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 1 says, a man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. So God hardens, and He hardens sinners by not interceding. That's a key idea. God hardens sinners by not interceding to enable them to repent and respond to the revelation of Himself, both in nature and gospel. He leaves them in their state of rebellion and unbelief, a place where they are very happy to be and in the process gradually hardens them by continuing to expose them to the truth of who he is. Perhaps I can illustrate this to you a little bit, so let me try this out on you. Think of the situation of a young child. A young child, perhaps, that, uh, that we invite to church, maybe a neighborhood child or something like that. And the child is willing to come and willing to listen to Bible stories. They're fun. It's fun to be here, and so they're happy to come. And they come and they listen to the Bible stories. And, and they may even be willing to memorize Scripture for a period of time. But as they grow older, that constant exposure to the Word of God, unless God intercedes on their behalf to open their eyes to the reality of who He is, what happens is, is that over time they become hardened to the truth. They're not interested in coming anymore and listening to Bible stories. They're not interested in memorizing Scripture anymore. Their interest in the things of God begins to wane, and eventually they grow hard and cold, and they want nothing to do with Christ at all. And we have all known people like that who began in the church as young children, but later in life they have absolutely nothing to do with God. That is an illustration of the process of hardening. In fact, Jesus says, Matthew chapter 13, verse 12. Don't turn there, I'll just read it to you. But Jesus says something that's really frightening in regard to this. He says that whoever has, to him more shall be given and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away from him. Meaning that the, the small interest they once had in the things of God, unheeded over time, eventually is taken away from them so that they want nothing whatsoever to do with Christ and His church. How does God harden? God hardens the non-elect by continual, repeated, unheeded exposure to Himself in Revelation. 
Second question. Does God desire all men to be saved? Does God desire all men to be saved? Now, there are three key New Testament texts which seem to indicate that God desires to save everyone. And those of you who sent me emails, thank you for that. Every single one of these texts appeared in your emails. What about this verse that says this? What about that verse? And I appreciate you sending me those verses because you're right. What about those verses? And what I'd like to do is take a look at those verses with you. How do we reconcile? This is kind of underneath this question. How do we reconcile the, the idea that God desires all men to be saved with the reality that God hardens certain people? How do we put that together? And can we put that together? Now, some very, very good Bible teachers and theologians reconcile these two statements that appear in tension together by speaking about a difference between what is called the revealed will or the open will of God and his secret will or his decretive will. Now, that may be a brand new concept for you. The revealed will of God and the secret will of God. The revealed will of God is those things which God has openly declared are pleasing or displeasing to him. That is his revealed will. He has told us what pleases him and what displeases him. For example, he says in his word, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. And you shall have no other gods besides me. That is the revealed will of God. That is his open Revealed desire for mankind. That is his will for humanity. That you would love him with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And that you would have no other God beside him. God's secret will or God's decretive will refers to those things that are hidden away by God. And unless he reveals them to us through prophecy, they remain unknown until they come to pass. Until they come to pass. For example, Deuteron or Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. There, the prophet Daniel writes and he says that God removes kings and establishes kings. That is, that God puts into leadership over countries those who he wants to be in leadership, and when he's done with them, he removes them. The secret or decretive will of God has been revealed to us in the recent presidential election. The one whom God wanted to be in presidential authority over this country has been revealed now. He didn't predict it for us. He didn't give us any advance notice. But now in the rearview mirror, we look backwards and we can see, according to Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, that our current or our president-elect is God's choice of president for this nation. That is his secret will. That is his decretive will now revealed in space and time. So some very, very fine Bible teachers, they point to the tension, the examples of tension between the two aspects of the will of God. That is which he has revealed that he wants done and that which he doesn't reveal, but later comes to pass. And we know that is his decided will. And they look to that tension and they and they use that notion to try to reconcile the idea of 
God's statements about all wanting all men to be saved and the reality that he only saves some and he hardens the rest. Let me give you an illustration of this. According to Luke chapter 22, verse 3, Satan inspired Judas to commit the great moral evil of betraying the Son of God. Judas should not have done that. It was not God's revealed will for Judas to do that. It was Judas is not off the hook because he did that. Yet the scripture says, Peter says in Acts chapter 4, verse 28, that it all occurred according to the predestined plan of God. That is, Judas should not have been a traitor, should not have turned Jesus over to the Roman authorities and brought about his execution. Yet at the same time, it was absolutely the predestined plan of God that that event occur. You have an illustration there of the collision of a revealed will and a secret will of God. Jesus himself comments on this, by the way, Luke chapter 22, verse 22. He said, for indeed, the son of man is going as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Okay, the secret decretive will of God is that Christ would be betrayed and taken to the cross. It was God's plan from before the foundation of the earth. Yet in space and time, the persons responsible for that plan are wicked and condemned for it. So some try to reconcile using this this notion of a revealed will of God and a secret will of God, the issue of God's hardening and God's stated desire for all men to be saved. But I think there's another way to do this. And so that's what I'm going to try to do with you this morning. And I uh, I present this to you uh, with some measure of hesitation. That is that 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 um, I believe that this is a better way. But as I said, there are many, many who who understand it differently. And so I offer this out to you. I will walk you through how I understand these texts together. And and at the end of it all, you may agree with me, you may disagree with me. But at least let me show you how I will reconcile these texts together. Okay, so let's do this in uh, Second Peter, chapter three, verse nine, page twelve, seventeen. Out. Okay, so we're going to look at the whatabouts. We're going to look at Second Peter three. We're going to look at 1 Timothy 2, and we're going to look at Matthew chapter 23, okay? Those were the three what-about texts. And what I'm going to try to, uh, to demonstrate for you here is that there are, within the context in which these verses appear, there are sufficient contextual markers to show that the statement about all men is not a statement that speaks about each and every single human being that ever has or ever will live. That it's being used in a more restrictive sense than that. When we read these verses and we read all men, the initial uh, understanding that would come to our mind is that somehow this is a grant of A a vast sweeping statement that gathers up every single human being that ever has or ever will live. But I don't think that's true. I think in the context, it's actually a much more limited, narrow statement than that. So here we are in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Let me just read the verse first. It says, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. But is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. There it is, David. 
He's wishing for all to come to repentance. Indeed, it does say that. But let me back you up a little bit and let's start at the beginning of the chapter and let's read the first 14 verses in which this verse 9 appears and see what kind of a context we've got going on here. By the way, a text without a context is a proof text. Okay, so you can just file that away. A text without a context is a proof text. That means we need to interpret a verse within the context of the surrounding verses that give it its meaning. Beginning in verse 1, chapter 3. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth, by his word, are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of, the Lord, of God on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Okay. First observation, and it's a pretty straightforward one, the context of Second Peter chapter three, verse nine is not salvation, but judgment. It is a judgment context. It flows all through there. It speaks of God's original judgment in the deluge recorded back in Genesis, in the great worldwide flood. And then now it's speaking about a, a coming judgment in which by fire, God will destroy the heavens and the earth. So it's a judgment context, not a salvation context. Peter is explaining why it is that there appears to have been a delay in God's final judgment. Why does God wait is the question. Why is it that God doesn't just destroy this earth? There is wickedness everywhere. He did it once before in the flood. Why doesn't he do it now? That's what the mockers are saying. And they're saying, actually, that your God doesn't exist. 
He doesn't exist. We, where is the promise of His coming? Where is this coming judgment that you Christians talk about? How come it's not here? And beyond that, Peter is addressing the issue of how should the church respond to that delay in judgment, which he does in verse 14 by speaking about holy living. So the whole overall topic is judgment, not salvation. It's answering a question about why is judgment delayed and what should the church be doing during this period of waiting? Beyond that, Peter is writing to professing believers, you. Notice verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Who are the you? Who are the you? Well, in verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul says, this is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to who? To you. To you. Verse 2, it appears again that you should remember the words spoken beforehand. So Paul, or Peter rather, is writing to professing believers. He is writing to those who identify themselves with Jesus Christ. They are the you that God is being patient towards. Okay, he's being patient towards these professing believers. This you, by the way, defines the any and the all in verse 9. A proper understanding of who are the you defines who are the any and the all. And basically, here's what Paul is saying, or Peter is saying. He's telling these professing believers that God is patiently holding off his final judgment because he does not want any of them, that is the you, those to whom he is writing, to perish. To perish. But for them... And all those who are like them, that is, he does, he's not wishing for any of them to perish, but for all who are like them, that is, the elect, to come to repentance. Then he will judge. Then he will return and destroy the earth. After he has saved his people. That, I believe, is the point that Peter is making here in this text. He is not making a statement about God's desire for the worldwide repentance of humanity. He is instead speaking about God's slowness and bringing judgment because he is waiting for the elect to be born and to come to the place of salvation. Let me take you over back to the left to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And let's take a look at the next one. Did I say 2 Timothy? I meant 1 Timothy. So if I said 2, I meant 1. 1 Timothy 2, page 1187. 1 Timothy, the key verse, chapter 2, verse 4. God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Let me just read beginning in verse 1 of this chapter. Paul writes here to Timothy. He's pastoring the church at Ephesus, and he says, First of all, then, I urge you, or I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. And for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth here, I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is the context about Paul's instruction to Timothy that the church is to pray for the salvation of all men. Pray for the salvation of all men. Now, here's the question. Was Paul actually instructing Timothy to get out the phone book and pray for every single person in Ephesus? Is that what he was telling him to do? Timothy, get out the phone book of Ephesus, and I want you to pray for the salvation of every single name in that phone book, all men. Is that what he's saying? Or is he referring to all classes of men? I want you to pray for the salvation, Timothy, of all classes of men. Notice verse 2, where he says, for kings and all who are in authority. Do you see that? Verse 2 Immediately follow the first part of verse two immediately follows verse one. That's my first observation for you. OK. That's that's pretty, pretty astute, isn't it? OK. First part of verse two immediately follows verse one. But it qualifies. This is the point. It qualifies the statement in verse one. I want a treaty. I urge the treaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving to be made on half of all men for kings and all who are in authority. Actually, you have the same Greek construction, by the way. The preposition uh, huper, it means on behalf of. It literally reads, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings uh, be made on behalf of all men, on behalf of kings and all who are in authority. I think Paul is classified, he is, he is, um, qualifying his initial statement here in the beginning of verse 2 by speaking about classes of men. I want you to pray for all men, Timothy, including those who are in authority, kings and those who are in authority. Now, why is that a, an astounding statement that needs to be said? Well, because the church is being persecuted by who? By those in authority. And so the natural thing for the church to do would be to not pray for those in their, in their salvation. But Paul is saying to Timothy here, I want you to pray even for those kind of men. That they would come to faith. Even the kind that kill you, Timothy. Go over to chapter 6, verse 10. We see the exact same construction, grammatical construction there, in chapter 6, verse 10, where Paul says, For the love of money is a root of, here it is, all sorts of evil. All sorts of evil. You could take that translation and bring it right back here to chapter 2, verse 2, or verse 1 there. It says that I urge prayers, petitions, and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all sorts of men for kings and those who are in authority. Let your eyes drop down to verse 4. Where Paul says that this is acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This brings to my mind at least 
God's original commission to the Apostle Paul back in Acts chapter 22, verse 15, when God commissions him to the ministry, God says to him, for you, Paul, will be a witness for God to all men of what you have seen and heard. You will be a witness, Paul, to all men of what you have seen and heard. In what sense was Paul a witness to all men? It certainly couldn't be all men who have ever lived or all men who were living at that time. It couldn't even be all men who were living in any one city. I think it's a He's speaking of classes of men, types of men, and that was the ministry of the Apostle Paul. He preached to kings and those in authority, and he preached down to the lowest slaves. In fact, if you'll turn to the right here, to, to Titus chapter 2, verse 11, page 1194, if you're using those few Bibles, we see similar construction. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. All men. But the context of, a, of Titus chapter 2, as you know, is that it speaks about categories of people there. Verse 2, it speaks about older men. Verse 3, older women. Verse 4, younger women. Verse 6, younger men. Verse 9, masters and slaves. All categories, all classes, all types of men. In fact, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, Paul says there, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It is my understanding of 1 Timothy chapter 2, when Paul says that he desires all men to be saved, that he is speaking about all classes of men, all kinds of men, from the noble to the ignoble, from the free to the slave, from, from men to women, from rich to poor. Let me take you back to the left, to uh, John's Gospel, John chapter 12. We're still on this topic about all men here, John 12. And verse 32, page 1076, John 12, verse 32. Jesus says there, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. In what sense is Jesus making that predictive prophecy? Is Jesus saying that when he's crucified, and we know it's crucifixion, because verse 33 says it is. So is Jesus saying that his crucifixion will draw all men who have ever lived to himself without exception? Is that what he means? Or in what sense will he draw all men to himself? I mean, clearly all men don't believe. And historically, all men have not believed. So what can it mean when he says, I will draw all men to myself? Again, the context gives you the clue to interpretation. Verse 20 sets the context. It says, now there were certain Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These therefore came to Philip, who was at Bethsaida of Galilee, from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew, Philip came. They told Jesus. Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he goes on and he speaks. The greater context here is that the, the Gentiles have come to see Messiah. 
And it's in the context of the Gentiles coming to Messiah that Jesus said, if I be crucified, when I am crucified, I will draw all men to me. By the way, you can see the fulfillment of this prophecy in Revelation chapter 7. So turn over to Revelation 7, verse 9. And by the way, John wrote the book of Revelation, the same one who wrote the Gospel of John. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, he says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on His throne and to the Lamb. I will draw all men to myself. You go to the book of Revelation and you see the throne room of God. And what do you see before the throne of the Lamb? Is that you see all kinds of men. Drawn from every tribe, from every tongue, from every people, from every nation. All before Him. Because He promised that that's what would happen. So, beloved, I understand these these all-men passages, to be speaking about not all men without exception, but all men without distinction. Not all men without exception. There is no sense in which God saves all men without exception. But it is very true that God saves all men without distinction. That is, that there is no one that has a leg up on anyone else. God is not a respecter of persons. Being wealthy doesn't put you closer to the kingdom of God. Being poor doesn't keep you further away or put you closer. Being born in one country versus another, one ethnicity versus another, none of those things cut any ice with God. They don't incline you towards God. God saves all without distinction. He saves from all classes of mankind. And that takes me to the third verse. So I guess the answer is we're going to get through one question today. Matthew chapter 23. This is the third New Testament text that you are so kind to raise, and appropriately so, because these are key texts. Matthew 23, verses 37 to 39, page 985. Matthew 23, 37 to 39, page 985. Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate, for I say to you that from now on you shall not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is Jesus' lament over Jerusalem. And there are some who read this and understand it to mean that, that Jesus wanted to save all the Jewish nation, but he was unable to do so. But, beloved, I think that that is not what he is saying here. Actually, if you locate this text again in its context, this is almost exactly the opposite of what he was saying. This, the context of this lament is at the end of Jesus' public ministry. 
He has been making himself known to the nation now for almost three years. This statement here in verses 37 and following immediately comes on the heels of Jesus' most serious confrontation and denunciation of the spiritual leaders of Israel. Follow along with me. Chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. Then the Pharisees went and counseled together how they might trap him in what he said, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know you are truthful. Teach the way of God and truth. Defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? They're trying to trap him. Jesus said, perceiving their malice, why do you ask me? Why do you test me, you hypocrites? They're trying to trap him. They're trying to discredit him. They're trying to destroy him. So they seek to put him on the horns of the dilemma of who do you pay taxes to? Verses 23 through 33, after Jesus spoils the Pharisees' trap, the the Sadducees come to him, and they come to him with that great hypothetical about the woman with seven husbands. You remember that one? There was this this, uh, lady who had a husband, Jesus, and and then he died, and then she married his brother, and then he died, and this lady must have been the black widow because she has seven husbands, right? Right? And, he, and they say, Jesus, in the resurrection, whose husband is she going to be? I mean, who's, whose wife is she going to be? Which, you know, they all had her. And Jesus proceeds to dismantle them by saying, you know, neither the power of God nor the scriptures, right? He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. For I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is, they're not dead. They're living. And so he bests the Sadducees at theological jujitsu. And then, beginning in verse 34, to verse 36 of Matthew 23, he calls down the curses. Oh, I missed one. I'm sorry. Matthew 23, 13 to 33, it's the woes. The eight woes on the Pharisees. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Then chapter 23, 34 to 36, he calls down the curse of blood upon all of their heads. Right. He says that verse 35, you that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. So he calls down that curse upon them. And then he says, Jerusalem, reference to individual Jews, but a reference to the leaders of Israel. He is speaking here to the leaders of Israel. That's who are in the context leading up to this. It was the leaders of Israel who God sent the prophets to and whom they killed, including, by the way, Jesus himself, right? Notice also that Jesus says that he wanted to gather their children together. That differentiates them from the ones from whom he, uh, that he is speaking to. Jerusalem, Jerusalem is not the same as the children. In the first century, the, the leaders, the rabbis, would have spiritual children. That would be what they would be called. He says, you were not willing. I wanted to gather together your children, you leaders, who killed the prophets. But you were unwilling, end of verse 37. That is, they were unwilling 
to allow him to gather their children, to gather the nation together. Verse 13, chapter 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. So the statement Jesus is making here in Matthew 23, verse 37, is, is not a lament that he can't, he wants to save all Israel, but he can't. Instead, what he is lamenting is the fact that the very ones who were supposed to welcome the Messiah are the ones who are going to kill him because they are the ones who are most aggressively resisting his ministry. That's his woe. That's his lament. Is that the leaders should have welcomed him and instead of welcoming him, they've done everything within their power to resist him up to and including they're about to kill him. And he says, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is, until the nation repents, beginning at its leadership. Beloved, God is not impotent. God does not sit on the edge of heaven wishing and hoping that he can save. God saves. He is our Savior. Those whom He has chosen from before the foundation of the earth, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, will most assuredly come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has no unfulfilled desires in this area. If you're here this morning and you have not experienced his salvation. You are still a child of wrath. You are still separated from God. No one but God alone knows whether you are our elect or not. People don't have big E's on their foreheads. Election is God's business. Gospel preaching and repentance is ours. God commands for you to repent and believe. I implore you to do that. I implore you to not harden your heart against Him. To not somehow try to evade Him even using the great doctrine of election as some sort of a smokescreen to try to hide behind. You know who you are. You know whether you believe or don't. This is serious business. This is very, very serious business. Life is but a vapor. James said it's like the steam above a cup of coffee. It lasts about that long. Nobody knows what today holds but God alone. I urge you with all my heart, I plead with you, that if you are not sure, if you are not sure of where you stand, 
then you come to the cross and you be sure. You bow your knee and your heart before your Creator. You call out to Him and beg Him for mercy. You ask Him to save you. Believing that He will. If you will but ask. Let's pray. Our Father, we want to be preserved from allowing the doctrine of election to become merely an academic exercise in which we argue about theological positions and look for proof texts. So, Father, we're handling a holy thing. We're talking about You and how You work in human history. And Lord, we don't have all the answers. We have what you provided for us if we will be diligent to search it out. We can know truly those things that you have revealed. But our Father, in the midst of all of it, what we don't want to lose sight of is the reality that Jesus came into this world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. I pray, our Father, that you would woo to yourself those that are in this room this morning who do not know Jesus Christ. I pray that you would so convict them, so unsettle them, so torment them, that they would not leave until they make peace with their Creator. I pray that you would open your hand of mercy and grace and pour it out on them. That they might join the rest of the elect through the ages, singing your praise both here and eternally before the throne of the Lamb. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin to sing, I want you to come over here to this lighted cross where there will be some people to open their Bibles and, and show you how you may too receive the gift of eternal life that is available to you.